Chapter Ten of the Lure of the Labrador Wild by Dylan Wallace. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Ten, Prisoners of the Wind. It was four o'clock in the afternoon when the sun was getting low that I, near the base of the mountain, and still industriously picking berries, heard a shout from Hubbard and George at the canoe on the shore of the lake below. I was anxious to hear the result of their journey, and hurried down. "'It's there! It's there!' shouted Hubbard, as I came within talking distance. "'Michikamau is there, just behind the ridge. We saw the big water. We saw it!' In our great joy we fairly hugged each other, while George stood apart with something of Indian stoicism, but with a broad grin nevertheless expanding his good-natured features. We felt that Windbound Lake must be directly connected with Michikamau, and that we were now within easy reach of the caribou grounds and a land of plenty. It is true that from the mountain top Hubbard and George had been unable to trace out the connection, as Windbound Lake was so studded with islands and had so many narrow arms reaching out in the various directions between low, thickly wooded bridges, that their view of the waters between them and Michikamau was more or less obscured but they had no doubt that the connection was there. And, added Hubbard, after I had heard all about the great discovery, good things never come singly. Look there. I looked where he pointed, and there on the rocks near George's feet lay a pile of ptarmigans and one small rabbit. I picked them up and counted them with nervous joy. There were nine, nine ptarmigans and the rabbit. You see, said Hubbard reverently, God always gives us food when we are really in great need, and he'll carry us through that way. In the wilderness he'll send us Nana. On similar occasions in the past Hubbard had made like remarks to this, and he continued to make them on similar occasions in the future. Invariably they were made with a simplicity that robbed them of all cant. They came from the man's real nature. While George dressed three of the birds, Hubbard and I built a fire on the rocks by the shore. Since early morning, when we had a breakfast of thin soup made with three thin slices of bacon and three spoonfuls of flour, we had had nothing to eat, and our hunger was such that while dinner was cooking we each took the entrails of a bird, wrapped them, as George told us the Indians did, on the end of a stick, broiled them over the fire, and ate them greedily. And when the ptarmigans were boiled what a glorious feast we had! In using a bit of bacon for soup in the morning we had drawn for the first time on our emergency ration. The situation seemed to warrant it. Nevertheless we were as bent as ever on hoarding this precious little stock of food. At five o'clock we paddled up the lake to the northeast to begin our search for the connection with Michikamau. Hubbard dropped a troll as we proceeded and caught two two-pound Namayakush, which, when we went into camp at dusk on a small island, George boiled entire, putting into the pot just enough flour to give the water a milky appearance. With this supper we had some of the blueberries stewed, and Hubbard said they would have been the real thing if we only had a little sugar for them. All day on September the 10th we continued our search for the connection with Michikamau, finally directing our course to the southwest where a mountain seemed to offer a view of the waters in that direction. It was dark when we reached its base, and we went into camp preparatory to climbing to the summit in the morning. We had been somewhat delayed by wind squalls that made canoeing dangerous, 
and before we made camp rain began to fall. We caught no fish on the troll that day, but Hubbard shot a large spruce grouse. At our evening meal we ate the last of our ptarmigans and rabbit. "'George,' said Hubbard after we had eaten our supper, "'you have a few more of your mother's dried apples there. How would it be to stew them tonight and stir in a little flour to thicken them? Wouldn't they thicken up better if you were to cook them tonight and let them stand until morning?' guess they would replied george there ain't many of em here shall i put them all to cook yes said hubbard put them all to cook and we'll eat them for breakfast with that small trout wallace caught and the two ptarmigan entrails in the morning september eleventh we drew lots for the trout and george won so he took the fish and hubbard and i each an entrail and with the last of the apples before us that hubbard's mother had dried sat down to breakfast how well said hubbard i remember the tree on the old michigan farm from which these apples came and now he added i'm eating the last of the fruit from it that i shall probably ever eat why said george don't you expect to get back to eat any more that isn't it replied hubbard father signed a contract for the sale of the farm last spring and there to deliver the property over to its new owners on the fifteenth of this month father wanted me to come to the farm and run it as he's too old to do the work any longer but i had other ambitions i feel half sorry now i didn't for after all it's home to me and always will be wherever i go in the world how often i've watched mother gathering these apples to dry and then the apple butter did you ever eat apple butter boys george had not but i had well continued hubbard there was an old woman lived near us who could make apple butter better than anybody else. Mother used to have her come over one day each fall and make a big lot for us, and say, but wasn't it delicious? I've told you, Wallace, about the maple sugaring on the farm, and you had some of the syrup I brought from there when I visited father and mother before I came away on this trip. We used to bring to the house the very first syrup we made in the spring, while it was hot. The first, you know, is always the best and mother would have a nice pan of red-hot tea biscuits, and for tea she'd serve the biscuits with cream and the hot new syrup. And sometimes we'd mix honey with the syrup, for father was a great man with bees. He kept a great many of them and had quantities of honey. He had a special house where he kept his honey, and in which was a machine to separate it from the comb when the comb was not well filled. In the honey house on a table he always had a plate with a pound comb of white clover honey and spoons to feed it with, and he invited every visitor to help himself. Once, I remember, a neighbor called on father and was duly taken out to the honey house. He ate the whole pound. "'Will you have some more?' asked father. "'Don't care if I do,' said the neighbor. So father set out another pound comb, which the neighbor proceeded to put out of sight with a facility fully equal to that with which he demolished first. "'Have some more,' said father thanks said the neighbor but maybe i've had enough i used to wonder how the man ever did it but i guess i myself could make two pounds of honey disappear if i had it now hubbard poured some tea in the cup that had contained his share of the applesauce and after carefully stirring into the tea the bit of sauce that clung to the cup he poured it all into the kettle in which the sauce had been cooked and stirred it again that he might get the last bit of apples from the tree on that far-away Michigan farm. Then he poured it all back into his cup and drank it. "'I believe it's sweetened the tea just a little,' he said. 
and that's the last of mother's sweet apples. Breakfast eaten, we had no dinner to look forward to. Of course there was the emergency ration, but we felt we must not draw on that to any extent as yet. Hubbard was much depressed, perhaps because of his reminiscences of home and perhaps of our desperate situation. We still had to find a way to Michikamau, and the cold rain that fell this morning warned us that winter was near. The look from the mountain top near our camp revealed nothing owing to the heavy mist and rain. Once more in the canoe we started southward close to the shore to hunt for a rapid we had heard roaring in the distance. Trolling by the way we caught one two-pound namaikush. The rapid proved to be really a fall where a good-sized stream emptied into the lake. We had big hopes of trout, but found the stream too shoal and rapid with almost no pools, and we caught only a dozen small ones. Towards evening we took a northwesterly course in the canoe in search of the lake's outlet to Michikamau. While paddling we got a seven-pound namaikush, which enabled us to eat that night. Our camp was on a rock-bound island, partially covered with stunted gnarled spruce and fir trees. The weather had cleared and the heavens were bright with stars when we drew our canoe high upon the boulder-strewn shore, clear of the breaking waves. The few small trout we had caught we stowed away in the bow of the canoe, as they were to be reserved for breakfast. Early in the morning, September 12th, we were awakened by a northeast gale that threatened every moment to carry our tent from its fastings, and as we peered out through the flaps rain and snow dashed in our faces. The wind also was playing hijinks with the lake. It was white with foam, and the waves dashing against the rocks on the shore threw the spray high in the air. Evidently there was no hope of launching the canoe that day, and assuming indifference of the driving storm that threatened to uncover us, we settled down for a much-needed morning sleep. At ten o'clock George crawled out to build a fire in the lee of some bushes and boil trout for a light breakfast. Soon he stuck his head in the tent, and his face told us that something had happened even before he said, "'Well, that's too bad.' "'What's too bad?' asked Hubbard anxiously. "'Somebody stole the trout we left in the canoe.' "'Who?' asked Hubbard and I together. "'Otter or somebody. Maybe a martin.' George always referred to animals as persons. We all went again to look and make sure the fish were not there somewhere, but they were really gone, and we looked at one another and laughed and continued to make light of it as we ate a breakfast of soup made of three little slices of bacon with two or three spoonfuls of flour and rice. We occupied the day in talking, visiting, Hubbard called it, and mending. Hubbard made a handsome pair of moccasins using an old flour sack for the uppers and a pair of skin mittens for the feet. George did some neat work on his moccasins and clothing, and I made my trousers look quite respectable again and ripped up one pair of woolen socks to get yarn to darn the holes in another. Altogether it was rather a pleasant day, even though Hubbard's display of his beautiful new moccasins did savor of ostentation and thereby excite much heart-burning on the part of George and me. Our second day on the island was Sunday, September 13th. We awoke to find that the wind, rain, and sleet were still with us. Our breakfast was the same as all our meals of the previous day, thin bacon soup. The morning we spent in reading from the Bible. Hubbard read Philemon aloud and told us the story. 
I read aloud from the Psalms. George, who received his religious training in the mission of the Anglican Church on James Bay, listened to our reading with reverent attention. Towards noon the storm began to moderate, and in a short stroll about the island we found some blueberries and currants which we fell upon and devoured. At one o'clock the wind abated to such an extent that we succeeded in leaving the island and reaching the mainland to the northeast. The wind continuing to abate, we paddled several miles in the afternoon, looking in vain for the outlet. In the course of our search we caught a namaikush and immediately put to shore to eat it. While it was being cooked we picked nearly a gallon of cranberries on a sandy knoll. We camped near this spot, and for supper had a pot of the cranberries stewed, leaving enough for two more meals. For several days past now, when George and I were alone, he had repeated to me stories of Indians that had starved to death or had barely escaped starvation, and a little later he spoke of these things in Hubbard's presence. To me he would tell how weak he was becoming, and how Indians would get weaker and weaker, and then give up to it and die. He also spoke of how he had heard the big northern loons cry at night farther back on the trail, which cries, he said, the Indians regarded as sure signs of coming calamity. At the same time he was cheerful and courageous, never suggesting such a thing as turning back. His state of mind was to me very interesting. Apparently two natures were at war within him. One, the Indian, was haunted by superstitious fears. The other, the white man, rejected these fears and invariably conquered them. In other words, the Indian in him was panicky, but the white man held him fast and in seeing him master his superstitious nature I admired him the more. Until this time it had been Hubbard's custom to retire to his blankets early, while George and I continued to toast our shins by the fire and enjoy our evening pipe. Then George would turn in, and I, while the embers died, would sit alone for an hour or so and let my fancy form pictures in the coals or carry me back to other days. In our Sunday night's camp on Windbound Lake, however, Hubbard sat with me long after George was lost in sleep, and together we talked of the home folks and exchanged confidences. I observed now a great change in Hubbard. Heretofore the work he had to do had seemed almost wholly to occupy his thoughts. Now he craved companionship, and he loved to sit with me and dwell on his home and his wife, his mother and sister, and rehearsed his early struggles in the university and in New York City. Undoubtedly the boy was beginning to suffer severely from homesickness. He was only a young fellow, you know, with a gentle affectionate nature that gripped him tight to the persons and objects he loved. Our little confidential talks grew to be quite the order of things, and often as the days went by we confessed to each other that we looked forward to them during all the weary work hours. They were the bright spots in our dreary life. A tremendous gale with dashes of rain ushered in Monday morning, September 14th. Again we were wind-bound, with nothing to do but remain where we were and make the best of it. A little of our thin soup had to serve for breakfast. Then we all slept till ten o'clock when Hubbard and I went out to the fire and George took a stroll through the bush on the shore in the hope of seeing something to shoot. While I cleaned my rifle and pistol, Hubbard and I chatted about good things to eat and the days of yore. "'Well, Wallace,' he said, 
I suppose that father and mother are today leaving the old farm forever, and that I never can call it home again. I dreamed of it last night. Over fifty years ago father cleared that land when he was a young man, and that part of Michigan was a wilderness. He made a great farm of it, and it has been his home ever since. How I hate to think of them going away and leaving it to strangers who don't love it or care more for it than any other plot of ground where good crops can be raised. Daisy, his sister, and I grew up there together, and I used to tell her my ambitions, and she was always interested. Daisy gave me more encouragement in my work than anyone else in the world. I'd never have done half so well with my work if it hadn't been for Daisy. After a moment's silence, he continued. That hickory cleaning rod for the rifle we lost on the portage of the big river, the beaver, father cut himself on the old farm and shaped it and gave it to me. That's the reason I hate it so to lose it. If we go back that way, we must try to find it. Father wanted to come with me on this trip. He wanted to take care of me. He always thinks of me as a child. He's never quite realized I'm a grown man. As old as he is, I believe he could have stood this trip as well as I have. He was a forty-niner in California, you know, and has spent a lot of his life in the bush. When George returned, empty-handed, alas, we had our dinner. The menu was not very extensive. It began with stewed cranberries and ended there. The acid from the unsweetened berries made our mouths sore, but, as George remarked, it was a heap better than not eaten at all. Perhaps I should say here that these were the hungriest days of our journey. What we suffered later on the good Lord only knows, but we never felt the food craving, the hunger pangs, as now. In our enforced idleness it was impossible for us to prevent our thoughts from dwelling on things to eat, and this naturally accentuated our craving. Then again, as everyone that has had such an experience knows, the pangs or hunger are mitigated after a certain period has been passed. In the afternoon George and I took the pistols and ascended a low ridge in the rear of the camp to look for ptarmigans. Soon George exclaimed under his breath, "'There's two. Get down low and don't let them see you. The wind blows so they'll be mighty wild. I'll belly round to that bush over there and take a shot.' He crawled or wriggled along to the bush, which was the nearest cover, and about forty yards from the birds. With a dinner in prospect, I watched him with keen anxiety. I could see him lying low and carefully aiming his pistol. Suddenly, bang, and one of the birds fluttered straight up high in the air, trying desperately to sustain itself, then fell into the bush on the hillside below. At that George raised his head and gave a peculiar laugh, a laugh of wild exultation, an Indian laugh. He was the Indian hunter then. I never heard him laugh so again nor saw him look quite as he did at that moment. As the other bird flew away, he rose to his feet and shouted, "'I hit him! Did you see how he went? Now we'll find him!' But we didn't. We beat the bushes high and low for an hour, and finally in disappointment and disgust gave up the search. The bird lay there dead somewhere, but we never found it, and we returned to the camp empty-handed and perhaps through anticipation, hungrier than ever. On Tuesday, September the 15th, the high west wind had not abated and the occasional sleet squalls continued. 
We were dreary and disconsolate when we came out of the tent and huddled close to the fire. For the first time Hubbard heard George tell his stories of Indians that starved. And there we were, still wind-bound and helpless, with stomachs crying continually for food, and the caribou migration was soon to begin, if it had not already begun, and there seemed no prospect of the weather clearing. We made an inventory of the food we were hoarding for an emergency, and found that in addition to about two pounds of flour we had eighteen pounds of pea meal, a little less than a pint of rice, and a half a pound of bacon. George then told another story of Indians that starved. At length he stopped talking, and we sat silent for a long while, staring blankly at the blazing logs. Slowly the minutes crawled. In great gusts the wind swept down, howling dismally among the trees and driving the sleet into our faces. Still we sat cowering in silence when Hubbard arose, pushed the loose ends of the partially burned sticks into the fire, and stood with his back to the blaze, apparently deep in thought. Presently, turning slowly towards the lake, he walked down through the intervening brush and stood alone on the sandy shore, contemplating the scene before him, the dull, lowering skies, the ridges in the distance, the lake in its angry mood protesting against its further advance, the low, wooded land that hid the gate to Michigamau. Weather-beaten, haggard, gaunt, and ragged, he stood there watching, then seemed to be lost completely in thought, forgetful of the wind and weather and dashing spray. Finally he turned about briskly, and with quick, nervous steps pushed through the brush to the fire where George and I were still sitting in silence. Suddenly, and without a word of introduction, he said, "'Boys, what do you say to turning back?' End of chapter 10 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.